This is the Thrive Content Clubcast. Hi and welcome to Content Clubcast. I'm Laura and I'm a copywriter at Thrive. Today I'm talking to Sophie Wood, who's a learning and development partner at online gaming company Lottoland. Sophie came out as a transgender woman in 2011, so we're going to talk a bit about her story, her experience of transitioning at work, and how workplaces in general could be a bit more inclusive to trans and non-binary people, and indeed people of all groups and backgrounds. So Sophie, hi and welcome. How are you doing? Hi, I'm I'm fine, thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm feeling um, nice, nice and relaxed. We've got some nice warm weather out here in this part of Europe at the moment. Oh, great stuff. So I think I wanted to get started, Sophie, just by asking you a bit about um, your story, just in terms of leading up to when you transitioned and perhaps a bit about why you transitioned at the time in your life that you did. Okay, so like most trans people, my story actually starts at a very young age. So I I kind of recognised that I was um, different gender to to how I was kind of representing in in the real world um, when I was about three, four years old. But I grew up before the internet in 1970s, 1980s, and I didn't even know that the word transgender existed um, at that time. I had no vocabulary. I had no way of articulating what I was feeling in, inside, no points of reference. So the way that I processed um, things was I just assumed that everybody had an alternative identity that they kept inside them and nobody talked about it because it wasn't socially acceptable. But obviously I was sufficiently aware that it wasn't a conversation that was on the table for discussion with anyone in my family or my friends or my peer group. Um, and that was all the way through to my kind of, I suppose, late 20s, early 30s. Um, so my kind of my identity, my gender identity was kept very much locked down for me, um, quite deeply locked down. And basically, I found myself in a situation when I was in my mid 30s, um, where I had all um, the trappings of a successful life. So I had a brilliant um, relationship with my my wife at the time, I had a great friends group, I was working for um, West Mercia Police Service. I was really successful at my job. I was really popular. I was part of sporting societies. Um, I had a great social life. My connections with my family were, were really, really great. So it was very unusual for me to be feeling depressed, um, which I was it's from my, you know, I think in my mid mid thirties. I would have what you call clinical depression. One of one of the symptoms of that depression was it was actually self-harming. So that behaviour was kind of noticeable and serious enough for me to get referred to see a psychologist. And I saw a psychologist for two years um, in Kidderminster in, in the West Midlands. And essentially, um, through conversations with that psychologist and analysing my behaviour and my life, um, I actually had this, this revelation. Um, where I just, in one session, I just leant back in my chair and I was looking at the ceiling and I suddenly realised that I was um, female and, and transgender and that was at the the, the heart of, of all of my uh, behaviours, low moods, the 
unwillingness to accept any positive feedback, the kind of really low self-esteem, low self-worth. And that was quite scary because obviously I was then faced with a choice whether to risk losing everything that I had in life um, by being brave and actually saying, this is who I am, this is how I need to lead my life. Um, So I was brave and I did come out to everybody and everything that I feared would happen did happen. Um, with the exception of losing my job. Um, So at the time I lost the relationship with my wife. Um, I also lost the relationship with my family, who uh, wrote me a letter to say that they would never be able to accept me uh, and and declared me dead to them. So that was very hurtful. And I lost all my friend groups. And I lost something that I didn't even know I had, which was male privilege. And when that was stripped away, literally overnight, um, was you know presenting very differently into society that had quite um, a severe impact on, on my mental health. Wow, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, it's mental health was actually one of the things that I did want to to talk about, and perhaps we'll get onto that a bit later. Um, I wondered if you could talk a bit about the kind of support that you had at work at the time. Obviously, you said you had a really difficult time with with friends and family. Um, how was it? How was it in the workplace? Did did you come out as transgender at work at, as at the same time as you came out personally? Yeah. So at the time that I came out, I was actually on a secondment, a twelve month secondment, and I was leading a national training project for what was then called the National Police Improvement Agency. Um, And everything that I described about me coming out, that happened when I was about three, no, um, halfway through that that kind of 12 months comment. So, and I was very unfair on the College of Policing because I just turned up on a Monday um, as Sophie and said, here I am, I'm I'm Sophie, any questions? And... um, everybody was really scared <laughs> really scared at the time I think not to kind of do or say the wrong thing um, and uh, it was it was it was quite an awkward situation it was quite privileged for me at the time because I was working remotely so I was only going into certain offices around the country so it was easy to manage from from that perspective so that's when I officially came out now at the end of that secondment I then went to my home force which is west mercia police which is in the center of the uk and that was a far more organized affair um and they really helped with helping me plan um how i presented myself in the workplace because there was a complicating factor in my presenting as sophia at work and that was that i also worked with my wife danielle and um we worked in, in a big open plan office danielle worked in hr i worked in learning development and we were two ends of the office. So it wasn't just a case of managing um, kind of my team's reaction to what to them was the new me, but it's also managing the reactions of Danielle's team because she was, she was heading up recruitment. And that was really difficult because they very much perceived that I had committed an act of harm against Danielle by coming out as trans. Um, and I can remember we had an offsite meeting before I actually came back into the workplace, um, which the the chiefs, the superintendent in charge of personnel services was was leading. 
the, the proceedings. Danielle's manager was in the room. My manager was in the room. Um, and we were both in the room. So between us as a group, we actually managed to project plan how me coming out at work would actually look and how we'd manage that. Now, part of that was I actually worked in a different office for two weeks um, in, a, in another park. We worked at the headquarters in Worcester. So I, I went to a, an office in Shropshire and that gave Danielle enough space to communicate everything that was happening, kind of you know, from her perspective to to her team, and I was I was completely on board with that. So even though our kind of relationship was on the wane, you know, at that point, Danielle was very supportive of me, um, and she certainly didn't perceive that she was a victim of anything. So she had that opportunity to do some education. Um, my team had an opportunity to kind of get used to things as well. Um, and I think they had some some uh, basic level trans awareness training whilst I was working over in, in Telford. And for me, it was great because I, I was in a little office with, with two other girls um, who were absolutely brilliantly supportive towards me. So my first two weeks was like a really nice, gentle introduction. And then I came back into, into the main office and I had a, a, um, I had a, a work plan. Um, which I had agreed, I'd essentially written. So everything that happened, and this was the good thing about it, everything on, on my transition plan in the workplace came from me. I drove absolutely everything in terms of decision-making. And that was a really brave decision from my management team to, to actually give me that kind of power and autonomy to actually manage things like communication, for them to check with me if, um, if people had witnessed uh, saying you know, anti-trans things or displaying anti-trans sentiments behind my back, then it was, I wanted them to come to me to see how I wanted dealt with rather than them just going in and kind of perhaps making the situation worse when I felt I had the communication skills to perhaps, you know, kind of de-escalate things um, from that perspective. So West Mercia Police were extremely supportive and it worked really well. And and do you know what? After about six weeks, we, we had I had a meeting with my head of department and we just said, you know, we don't need this plan anymore. It's it's kind of, we're, we're back to business as usual. But the effort that went into the planning and the organising and the consultation with me as the trans person, that's what made it work. Yeah, that sounds really positive, actually. Um, really difficult situation, but it sounds like having that kind of organisation and, as you say, you sort of taking the lead on that um, and people listening to you was really important. Yeah, and these, these were people with no experience of, of, of meeting a trans person or supporting a trans person in the workplace. It was a, it was a new situation to me. It was a new situation to them. Um, and we just agreed that we'd learn together, um, you know, through, through the experience. Um, and in fact, the best thing that the superintendent did, um, they'd actually had some kind of outdated uh, HR policy. Um, which he was supposed to kind of refer to when he was coordinating the initial meetings. And he just took one look at those kind of policy papers and said, this this doesn't work for this situation. So he just physically tore the piece of paper up in front of us all and said, so let's make a new plan. Yeah, that, that sounds like good good management, really, because it is, yeah, you've got to 
see the situation as an individual one, haven't you? Yeah. And you know, and it, and it wasn't it wasn't smooth sailing by by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I had lots of challenges in the workplace. I dealt with lots of challenging behaviour, but I also dealt with loads of really great people who were super supportive. And the pattern of behaviour was very much linked into how closely those people were in contact with me in the workplace. So if I should draw a concentric ring around me, <laughs> so Sophie at work, and my immediate team were the most supportive because they were speaking to me on a daily basis. So they were getting constant education, constant levels of understanding. They had no fear of the subject. They had no fear of me. They recognized very quickly I was the same person as I was before and still had the same skills, knowledge and attributes to bring to the role that I did beforehand. Um, and then as that constraint ring kind of went out in terms of the distance of people's relationship to me, then kind of behavior became poorer and, and, and poorer as a general kind of result. Yeah, that's a really good um, point to make, isn't it? it? Sometimes it's just people's fear of something they don't know or they haven't come across themselves and don't know how to act or deal with that situation and absolutely that that is actually something that I did want to ask you there's sort of often a lot of kind of nervousness about saying the wrong thing I suppose um and again like like you were just saying if people don't have a lot of knowledge or haven't met a trans person before that that could easily happen where's where's the line for you between someone kind of having that lack of knowledge and just making a mistake um and someone actually saying something transphobic or behaving in quite a harmful way i mean i think the biggest barrier to my inclusion both in society and in the workplace is the fear of the language of diversity um it's just not helpful uh, at all so if i if i if i was to meet myself now as my old self i would have been super curious and have loads of questions that i wanted to ask to kind of gain understanding but because of what I've been termed the fear of the language of diversity, people are reticent and sometimes even scared to make those approaches and ask those those questions. And that that's that's really, really unfortunate. Now I I started work in the nineteen nineties and I've been on so many kind of management HR courses in my life where we discuss effective communication. And countless sessions I've sat in a room and people acknowledge that the way something is communicated is like about eight or nine percent words, you know, and then the rest is verbal and non-verbal communication. And that's that's entirely true of, you know, this this scenario, this this aspect of, of diversity. And that is you, you very quickly and very instinctively and very emotionally get the intent behind a communication because of the way in which it's delivered, you know, through people's body language, through their tone of voice. You get that intent really loud and clear. So for me, saying the wrong words is, is not is not an issue um, because I can tell if somebody has got good intent and an absence of malice in the way that they're kind of speaking to me. My father-in-law is 83 years old and he sometimes still misgenders me because he knew me so long before I transitioned to Sophie. But there is absolutely no malice of intent in you know any of the occasions, even though it's upsetting from time to time. So I don't react, you know, in a, in a kind of way which would make him feel even worse or, or bad 
because you know like most people he recognizes if he's made a mistake you know and he, he'll feel bad about it so there's no there's no benefit in trying to compound that that issue i suppose going back to the the topic of language um and how to address someone what's the best way of navigating that do you think in the workplace you know it, is it a case of just asking people what they prefer you know how, how they prefer to be addressed um both when they're in the room and and out of the room um it's it's an interesting question for me because i can honestly say in my entire um experience of of kind of being out and and kind of in the workplace as a trans person that um the what the way i'm addressed directly is it's just never been an issue at all I mean, I used to belong to an organisation in the police service called the National Trans Police Association, which had uh, just over 100 members. Um, and quite a few of of our membership were, were non-binary people. Um, and we never, we just never had an issue um, with things like pronouns because we just had an innate dignity and respect when we were talking to each other. So if pronouns were important to a person, then they would feel comfortable saying, you know, uh, you know, I go by, you know, they, them. I mean, that's my lived experience. Um, that's not to say that I don't think that, that uh, focusing on people's correct pronouns is not extremely important, um, especially as um, kind of non-binary identities um, are entering the, the workplace um, more and and more. So. I think kind of acknowledging the right pronouns for people, it's it's almost not so much about kind of facilitating the conversation and the relationships between people. It's actually kind of, it's an overt signifier of support. Um, and it's an overt signifier that we respect this individual and, and this person is, is welcome. Um, and we will kind of, you know, treat them with the due dignity and, and respect that everyone else in the organization um, has. So. I think the use of pronouns in the workplace and, and highlighting them for doing things like putting them on your signature is, is a very strong um, and very easy way of, of supporting loads of different gender identities in the workplace. Going back to something that you said earlier about um, challenging behaviour you did experience, are you, are you comfortable to give any examples of, of that in, in terms of sort of discrimination both inside of work and, and outside of it? Um, certainly. So I think probably the the most frequent form of discrimination I had in, in the workplace um, was was actually isolation and an alienation. So people would say if I was walking around headquarters, which was a very big estate, um, then people would make a point of walking around me to to an extent that would actually make me just kind of stop in my tracks and actually watch somebody walk a wide arc you know around me when they could have just walked <laughs> past me on the on the footpath um for example <clears throat> which is an incredible experience to have in your life um <laughs> because you think oh my god am i that am i that kind of bad scary <clears throat> whatever that you can't actually physically walk past me um, you know people talk a lot about kind of microaggressions in, in the workplace 
And if I look back at my experience in the police service, um, I had a lot going on in my personal life. I've alluded to some of it, you know, um, I'd lost my relationship with, with my long-term wife and partner at that time. Um, I'd lost all contact with my friends and my been rejected by my family. I was having a horrible time in the local community, being ostracized and, you know, humiliated regularly and verbally abused. Um, and I also had to contend with, you know, the NHS um, in, in terms of trying to find some kind of, you know, med- medical uh, care pathway. Um, but as a result of that, I actually tried to take my own life um, because it, it appeared to me at one particular time that the gateway to treatment had been closed off to me. Um, and on the back of that, I then uh, voluntarily went into a mental health institution for, I think it's a period of 10 days. Um, now, nobody at work knew about those experiences. They just thought, you know, absence from work, maybe on holiday. Um, so I actually went back into, <laughs> straight, straight, you know, straight out of those experiences and back into the workplace. So there's an awful lot going on in my life there. So you can imagine even the smallest of what are kind of uh, <laughs> called these microaggressions can just be enough to to kind of send people under um, a kind of throwaway comment to kind of make fun of somebody. You know, it can have an absolutely devastating impact. And it's really easy to do that in the workplace. You know, it doesn't take any effort at all to be discriminatory. Um, but the benefits of actually just being kind to people and showing actual acts of kindness in the workplace, which does take conscious effort, those acts of kindness can be so powerful. Yeah, that's that's exactly it, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it, it is so important just to, to be careful about how you behave and, and what, what you say. Um, and yeah, just be kind. I wonder if we talk a bit about mental health because, you know, there's obviously quite a few worrying stats around about um, just just a couple from Stonewall, for example, um, from a report in 2018, I think it was, um, two thirds of trans people have experienced depression in the last year. 70% of non-binary people had also experienced depression. There's obviously particularly high attempted and, and suicide rates as well. Yeah. How do you think workplaces could play a part in protecting people's mental health or supporting them better while they're transitioning or and afterwards as well? Um, I, I think the best thing companies can do is actually just prioritise mental health um, full stop in, in terms of supporting their workforce. Um, it's one, one of the things that we, we do in my current company, Lotterland, really well. Um, it's one of the, well, it's the only company um, I've, I've ever worked in where they actually employ what we call a, a resilience coach whose job it is to actually support people's mental health and provide kind of informal coaching and support, which is that one step further away from, from you know, therapy or, or counselling. Um, so the person who questions like a trained psychologist, we, 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 we encourage all of our people to do, for example, mental health first aid training. Um, you know, and, and I myself, a um, mental health first aid instructor now, already I think we're... Um, I think we're on 15, 16% of people 
um, population of the workplace are mental health first aid trained. And of course, the benefits of that are not just, you know, providing immediate support if people are having some kind of crisis. It actually changes the conversation around mental health um, and actually kind of opens up those those kind of conversations which are, you know, traditionally considered to be uncomfortable. Um, so when people go on that two day course, then they kind of they they lose their fear of, of, of you know, mental health issues um, because they've got that education all of a sudden and so it becomes normalized and it becomes part of the conversation so when you apply that to then somebody transitioning in the workplace um, if they are experiencing any additional mental health issues as a result of um, the way that they are are treated then you know you've you've got a supportive workforce in place at that time um, so that's not a trans-specific thing that's just a, a really kind of healthy uh, well-being kind of approach that companies can make you touched on um point there about how really that should be a principle for for how you treat everybody and i know that that you have done a lot of work on inclusion policy as well haven't you in your sort of more recent roles so i don't know if you wanted to talk a bit about that yes um and again i, th- I think when you're talking about policies a, a trans inclusion policy or a general inclusion policy can can put in um protections in the workplace perhaps over and above the, the legislation that might happen to exist in the, in the country um, you know where your your offices are located um, so they're useful from from that basic protection perspective um, but the, I think their main purpose is is really a kind of again it's a signal of intent um, and it's a it's a clear loud message that we are a supportive employer um, one of the reasons I left one company out here in Gibraltar and moved to another one is is quite simply um, because I, I I found out just through a conversation um, that they had a an LGBTQ network that they just created and that they had an, an actual inclusion policy, um, you know, diversity inclusion as it was termed. Um, and that was enough for me to think, wow. You know, I want to work for a company like that because, you know, they're making a statement here saying we we support, you know, you know people, um, you know, from from this minority group. This is a safe place for them to come and work. So the policy and the publication of that policy, um, both internally and externally, has got a powerful message to give in terms of, you know, what values are you projecting to existing and prospective um, employees. Um, I think the danger of kind of putting policy front and centre is is that policies very rarely influence your actual culture. Um, your actual kind of day-to-day working culture is influenced by the behaviours and the actions of, of the people who, who, who work in the organisation, which kind of often stems and is most highly influenced by kind of frontline and, and middle managers um, and also, you know, senior leaders. But the key to, you know, supporting people from minority groups in the workplace is to create, is to focus on the I of DNI and create a really inclusive culture. And that means creating a psychologically safe space in the workplace where people can challenge um, you know inappropriate behaviors and that is really difficult 
easy words to say as ever, but very difficult to achieve because it takes courage for somebody in a peer group to actually stand up, for example, and say, oh, I don't really think, you know, you should be saying things like that because that's quite disrespectful. That, that Just saying that to a peer group takes a lot of courage and people need to feel that they are safe in making those challenges and won't be treated in a negative way. Um, so it's not so much about policy when it comes to creating inclusive culture. It's, it's about the values that you publicize within your culture and how closely you live to those values through um, the way that you interact and manage people. Mm. Yeah, definitely a good distinction to make, isn't it? There. Um, I, I suppose I just wanted to, um, to finish by asking quite a, a broad question. Um, what's what's life like now both in terms of sort of work and and home because you've obviously talked about some really quite dark times that you've been through um I mean think things are absolutely fantastic for me if I if I'm being honest I mean I mentioned you know losing the relationship with my wife Danielle um but we found that relationship again so she came over here to Gibraltar um living in working in Gibraltar living in Spain um and during the first two years of, of her coming over here, um, we realised that we didn't like being apart from each other. Um, and that we actually loved each other for the individuals that we were. And so that's why I gave up my uh, <laughs> my great career in the police service to actually come out here um, to, to rejoin her. So, and, you know, we've been together. Um, this is our, this year's our 30 year anniversary. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Um, but some people like me do do have bad experiences, but it's really not the end of the world, and you you overcome them, um, and you kind of grow from from all of those experiences, and then you'll find yourself in a place like me, where you're just I'm living my best life, you know, absolutely one hundred percent. Well, that's that's great to hear, and and it's great that that you've been able to share the the sort of positive as well as the negative that you've experienced along the way. Um, so thank you so much Sophie That's it's been such a, a, a really good conversation you've been listening to the Thrive Content Podcast visit www.thrivelearning.com for more information be bold be brave thrive